Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, am I audible? Can people hear me? Amazing, that's a great start. Um, so I'm John Elledge, I'm a journalist at the New Statesman where I edit City Metric and present a podcast called Skylines, which we're about to record. Uh, I have in the past chaired many panel debates, I've recorded many podcasts, I have not so far tried doing both at once. So everything might go horribly, horribly wrong, but we hope not. Um, as I said, it's the first time I try, we've tried a sort of live edition of the podcast. Um, I know it's sort of an odd fit with a local government conference, but if I could encourage everyone to sort of, you know, to cheer and laugh and so on, particularly at the very beginning when the music, if you want to give it, yay, all that kind of stuff, just so that, like, when we put it out, people can hear it's really live and not just something we've, we've made up. Um, but if, if, I think that's probably all the initial spiel. Claire's not paying attention, so I hope there's nothing else I'm meant to have said at this point. Um, so... Might as well go on with it, I suppose. Please, play the music. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Thank you. Uh, did that before I got to my spiel. Hello, I'm John Ellish, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. Uh, this this week, this is the first time we, we've done that. We're doing a live episode. We're coming to you from the slightly odd environment of a crypt beneath London's Guildhall, which, I mean, it is, I suppose it is in some ways one of the oldest town halls in Britain, so that's, that's a pretty appropriate place to, to talk about local government and its future. Also, I, I did see a rather terrifying great big statue of Margaret Thatcher on the way in so if at any point I, I look panicked let's just assume that's the reason why. Anyway we have an absolutely fantastic panel today and we are going to talk about uh, the future of local government. We're going to talk about what austerity means, we're going to talk about whether devolution is, is a real thing or just something that government likes to talk about to shut everyone up and probably also because I know how to have fun we are going to talk about Brexit. Um, if I could just introduce our panel we have Catherine Rees, who is the, um, I've forgotten, is Assistant Director of Transformation at Wigan. Yes. Have I got that right? Um, Excellent. Yes. Nice to have you here. We have Piali Dasgupta from, the, uh, from SOLAS, which is the Society of Local Government Chief Executives. I got to look close, close enough. We have Chris Naylor, who is the Chief Executive of Barking and Dagenham uh, out in East London, which is also uh, where I was born, as it happens. And last but not least, representing our, our hosts for this episode, we have Jessica Stullett, who is Deputy Director of the New Local Government Network. Chris, I'm going I'm to pick on you first. Um, we have talked a lot uh, on this podcast about 
the effects of austerity on local government about like those enormous budget cuts that have come down the line in the past seven or eight years. What does that mean in practice for a borough like yours on the sort of eastern edge of London? What, what has had to change to cope with those budget cuts? Yeah, okay. It's, well, it's, it's the kind of question of our times, really. I think um, over the last two or three years, I think the, the most profound change is a recognition that these cluster of things that we've come to refer to as austerity, although it's kind of fashionable to think that they can be policied away, probably aren't going to go away anytime soon. So therefore, a strategy that is kind of based on we just need to make a few cuts here or there get rid of a few non-jobs and, I don't know, change the frequency of our bin emptying, that is not a strategy that's going to sustain us. So if you think about um, funding reductions coupled with quite profound demographic change, together also I think with people's changing expectations about public services, those three things together kind of create a a sort of toxic mix of of challenge for us that we believe requires a big think, um, a, a really big think uh, about, the, about the future. In very practical terms, it means that by the end of this decade, we will have roughly half what we had at the start of the decade to provide the services that we were doing in 2010, 2011. For Barking and Dagenham, though, we are doing that in the context of being about 20 to 25 minutes away from the most successful city economy on Earth. We have space for 55 to 60,000 new homes. And so from our perspective, what all of this means, essentially, is how do we ensure that the growth that is coming out of central London to east London happens as quickly as possible? And how do we ensure that as many people in my borough as possible can benefit, uh, benefit from that growth? And you take all of those things together, and I think that requires for us to think uh, afresh and quite profoundly about what is the role of the council and the state in that, in that environment, given that there's a lot less money in the system. So I've always found Barking quite an interesting place because it feels to me like it, it has many of the characteristics of some of those northern industrial towns we talk about quite a lot, but it is perched on the edge of London. It's on, you know, you're on the tube in Barking, yet for a long time the economy there was very largely based on the, on the Ford's factory at Dagenham. Right, I mean, does that, am I no, wrong about this? Does no, this feel no, no, like no. A, a good way of describing it? No, no, so I, I grew up actually in, in Rotherham in South Yorkshire uh, in the 70s and 80s, and I quite often describe Barking and Dagenham as like up north, down south. You know, it is that kind of, um, you know, traditionally white working class area, uh, a single dominating employer, a lot of people living in uh, social housing, that kind of uh, the state, that employer place, identity, all of those things are very, very similar uh, to my hometown. And if you think back in, you know, 2006, Barking and Dagenham was a a borough where, in the elections in in 2006, 12 British National Party candidates were elected out of 51 councillors. You might think to yourself, well, okay. It's when you realise that 13, the BNP only stood in 13 seats, and they only didn't win the 13th uh, seat on a recount. Uh, there are anecdotal evidence of, of folk going into polling stations where there wasn't a British National Party candidate and adding the word BMP and putting a cross in the box. So, um, and, you know, if you take my hometown, they've also had uh, quite significant issues with, uh, with far-right politics as well. So I think, I think your point is right. And I guess what that... Ha- but, unlike Rotherham, we are 20 minutes away from this, 
this kind of economic supernova. And I think the challenge for us is way too many of our population, as indeed is the case where I grew up, are at the wrong end of a whole series of socioeconomic indicators, be they um, skills, be they um, um, uh, the propensity for there being unplanned teen pregnancies, uh, domestic violence, a whole set of, of things that hold people back are very, very prevalent in our, in our community. And the challenge for us is how do we get to some of those root causes as a local authority and tackle them so that people really are able to participate and benefit uh, from some of those jobs that are literally on their doorstep. Catherine, how much of this is, is familiar in, in Wigan and, how, and what's different? Um, yeah, I suppose a lot of it is familiar in Wigan. I think the um, Institute of Fiscal Studies said that we were the third worst affected local authority by austerity. So I completely recognise what um, you were saying about having to think about a radically different approach because simply just to cut things was never going to work. And I think our approach in, in Wigan has been to think about changing our relationship with residents. Um, and we've done that through our Wigan deal, which is about saying to our residents, do you know what, if we want to make our town a great place and deal with some of the challenges we've got around austerity, we can only do it together. Um, and the deal is quite simple. There's our, our part as a council and there's a your part as residents. So as a council, we will freeze your council tax, as we did, or now it's keeping your council tax low. But in return, we need you to recycle more. And that's just helped us to start to have a different conversation with our communities about what we can do to work together. And, I mean, what's, how, how have you found the public appetite for those conversations? I mean, are people kind of up for this change in the council's role? Or are they just like, shut up and get the bins emptied? Be blunt about it. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's mixed because for some people, the, you know, the only relationship they have with the council is, is the bins. But I think it's had to be supported by a whole range of enabling functions. So something we're really proud of is we've not um, cut any of our grants. In fact, we've increased them. So we launched a community investment fund to, bright, to um, invest in bright, innovative, grassroots community um, ideas. We've invested £9 million into the last four years into that. And we've also thought really differently about the role of our staff of working within communities, because I think we realised that despite progress around technology and working in partnerships, we'd lost sight of a few things. We'd stopped seeing people as people that have talents and gifts, and they're not always problems to be solved. Um, and also, we'd lost sight of what was going on in our local community. So I think through initiatives like The Deal, we've really started to re-engage in um, what makes Wigan great and what's going on in our local communities. I mean, in some ways, as I noted, you know, but I, I can see similarities between Barking and Wigan. They're both, I think I'm right in saying, Labour councils. They're both yeah. kind of on the edge of these much bigger <laughs> metropolises. Uh, and they both faced fairly significant cuts. So I'm wondering how typical this picture is. I mean, Piali, you've got kind of a, a bird's eye view of the entire country and what's going on in local authorities all over the place. How typical are these places? Or is there a different story being told elsewhere? I think there's different levels of acuteness. If we just remind ourselves, we weren't supposed to be in austerity right now. It was supposed to be finished by 2015. Now, I think a few authorities that perhaps felt themselves a little bit better placed in 2010 thought, do you know, we, we can hang on for five years. We can, we can cope for five years. Slice a little bit, remodel a little bit. Eight years in, eight years of year on year, there aren't very many places that aren't feeling quite a bit of pain with no end in sight. So I think even some of those leafy shires or you know, this myth that the districts have been somewhat shielded, 
I don't think anybody is feeling shielded anymore. And I think one of the things that's worrying me a little bit right now, but the moment that we're at, is we're turning on each other a little bit as a sector right now. Do you know, counties feeling like the London boroughs are a bit padded, counties hard done by. Equally, counties not feeling like their cases are being heard, districts feeling neglected. We've got to stop arguing about the distribution of the pot and actually talk about the size of the pot now. And that's what's worrying me is actually we need to make each other's cases. Jessica, does that, does that fit with your, your understanding, your experience? Um, I, I would agree. I think that tends to, there's a tendency um, from the government's side vis-a-vis -vis local authorities to potentially want to divide and rule in the sector and potentially um, pit parts of the sector against each other as a, in terms of a kind of scramble over the resources that do exist. And I think that, I, I, I'd agree, that's something um, to be wary of. I think that the broader point is there's been a a big shift in the way local government is funded. Um, we went into the decade um, um, in 2010 where um, local authorities were financed um, largely on the basis of needs. There were needs-based funding um, uh, formulas, um, which meant that there was a degree of being able to be responsive through your budgets to the demand pressures that you had um, as a council. Um, and the reduction in the funding that councils receive from central government means that councils in the future, by the end of the decade, um, as Chris says, most, most will have seen their funding cut in half, but that remaining half um, is much more based on their ability to raise revenue locally through business rates, through the business community and through council tax. Um, so the, uh, the prosperity and, and resource available for local services is going to be much more intrinsically linked to the health of the local economy, um, which is why Chris Chris talking about how Barking and Dagenham um, can, can, can look, to, look to London and look to the growth and the proceeds of growth that, that as an authority, um, it, it's going to be much more intrinsically linked to that because the, 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 the resource base is going to be much more linked to an authority's ability to capitalise on the proceeds of growth. Um, and also to look at the demand pressures on um, services and to try and make sure that um, what local authorities do and the purpose they're doing is, as Catherine was saying, much more kind of enabling and, and, and taking a different approach to their communities, not just, not just having people intervene at crisis point, but working in a much more preventative way, um, which is um, arguably you know, morally the right thing to do, but also uh, uh, cost, costs a lot less um, and, and makes a lot of sense. So, so there, there are shifts happening in terms of the incentives that local authorities have to work with communities um, and shifts in, in the kind of umbilical nature of, of local government finance with the health of the local economy. I want to get on to the sort of sunlit uplands of transformation and, and you know, all these amazing new powers which national government is definitely going to give councils any day now <laughs> in a minute. But first off, I just wanted to check, there was certainly talk at the start of the decade that it did seem to be Labour dominated, often quite sort of economically deprived areas that were seeing the worst cuts. I mean, that was certainly the, the, the narrative that you would read in, in The Guardian, for example. Was there any truth to that? Is that was it really the sort of the, those kind of more uh, Labour voting areas that did see the deepest cuts? It, the, the funding formula that, um, of the last Labour government was based on need. So arguably then that was the, the, the areas that had the deepest levels of poverty, which disproportionately are represented by Labour councils, then got the deepest cuts in terms of their 
the funding they receive because the, the, now the funding formula is much more based per head rather than <coughs> needs. Um, so that's why it's, it's, you can certainly look at how the funding has shifted, um, but I think now we're at a stage where actually um, the, the, there, are much more, there are much deeper things going on. The kind of, the, there's been a shift, but actually now um, in rural areas, for example, as Piali was saying, in the counties, there, there, are different, there are different kind of um, manifestations of that. So it's shifted much more from needs to per capita. It is interesting that um, one of the big stories in local government so far this year has been Northamptonshire literally running out of money, which is you know a rural, well, semi-rural Tory county council, rather than one of those sort of inner city boroughs that that perhaps might have been expected to get into trouble first. Um, so, so transformation is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot in local government circles. Not everyone listening to this podcast will necessarily work in local government. What does that, what does that actually mean in practice? And can you, Chris, can you give us some concrete examples of yeah, okay. how barking is changing how it does things? Yeah, okay. So I think, I mean, most of us have done the kind of transformation kind of things that management consultants talk about, like getting people to do things digitally and all that sort of stuff. But... Um, what it's meant for our authorities, if you go back to that fundamental principle of how do we have a set of people here who are currently disconnected from their ability to, to benefit from being part of this economy, that has led us to fundamentally redesign how our council operates, not in a dissimilar way to Wigan, actually. So we've created, for example, a new service that we call Community Solutions, where we bring together big chunks of adult social care, children's social care, um, uh, domestic violence services, uh, homelessness service, housing needs, we brought them all together and the job for that service is not to necessarily um, uh, provide a service that meets the prevailing, the, the presenting need, but to try and understand the root cause of what is going on in someone's life. So I'm going to give you two very brief examples to exemplify the point. A couple of years ago, if you felt you were about to become homeless in Barking and Dagenham, you go to our homelessness department that was based in our housing department. And it's not unreasonably, you might imagine. Um, essentially, what was happening in that service was a test of whether or not the council had an obligation to, to meet a certain need. And if we felt we did have an obligation, then that essentially meant finding um, a not a very nice place to live, probably quite a long way away from the authority. Well, it is an outcome, but it's not a terribly great outcome. These days you go to Community Solutions and the very first question we, you get asked is, why are you homeless? What is happening in your life that has caused this to happen? Now this isn't rocket science. In some cases it's because people can no longer afford their rent because their landlord have put their rent up. What we do know, because we're, um, we're immersing ourselves in data, is that quite often, nine times out of ten, folk aren't working full time. If they were working a few more hours a week, they would probably be able to continue to afford their rent. So the question is, what is stopping them working Excellent. Quite often it's childcare or it might be some other issue. But my point is you get to that issue and help the resident with that issue, which nine times out of ten spent costs a lot less than uh, finding them a not very nice place to live a long way away. The second example, and I think this absolutely goes to the heart of the kind of question about relationship with people, it's got quite a moral dimension. We're working with a charity called Pause, who are London-based, who essentially work with women who've had um, children taken off them at birth into care. Quite often these uh, young women are 19, 20, 21, 22 years old and they've had two or three kids taken into care. And they're in a pattern of, 
of, of pregnancy and, and children being taken away, which is devastating for them and, and not a great outcome for the children involved. From our perspective, on average, it costs around about £106,000 a year to have a child taken into care. So we've identified in the borough 70 women who between them have had 220 kids taken into care. If you just think about that for a second, it is a mind-blowing... It's incredible. A mind, and, and you know what? We would not have asked the question a few years ago, but now we're asking the question. And then, and then, the, and then the thought is, OK, so that's an issue, right? It's an issue for them, it's an issue for us. Um, who is best placed to have a conversation with those? And I'll tell you what, it's not the council because the council are the buggers who keep coming in and taking the kids off them. You know, I'm reminded of that Ronald Reagan quote, isn't it? Ten worst words in history, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. So we, we, are, we are working with a charity who specialise in, in working with young people who've experienced childhood trauma, which many of these women have, to try and understand the root cause of what's happening in their lives. And, and in this instance, work with them uh, to to manage their fertility. They, they encourage them to take a long-term contraceptive while they work with these young women to uh, try, and, uh, try and change that pattern and, uh, and, and reset where their lives are going. Now, you know, all of this is profoundly challenging. There's huge moral implications. They are political questions, but they're questions that I think are best answered locally, which perhaps takes us into some of the devolution stuff later on. But also, I fundamentally think we would not have got to asking these questions had the world just been carrying on as it was. It's because of the profound contextual changes we've been talking about earlier on that we're now in this place. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Catherine, you were nodding, you were nodding thoughtfully mm. for a lot of that. I mean, how much of this is familiar? What's, what, what's different in Wigan when your, your idea of transformation? Um, I, I was nodding because we're also doing the pause programme. I think it's um, really powerful because I think... Um, uh, 
as Chris said, you know, we're not supporting these women in the right way. We take their children into care and don't think about the, the impact that has on them, and they're often grieving. So thinking about um, how you, we can work in a different way is, um, so there's a, a lots of similarities, really. Um, and I think kind of um, some of those um, principles we've taken across a number of areas. So I suppose my example of transformation that kind of underpins some of the work we did around the deal was around adult social care. So in adult social care, which we know massive pressures with an aging population, we used to, a busy social worker would often decide what package of care they were given to a person before they'd even spoke to them. And that would often be in a day centre, and we'd pick them up from one part of the borough, and we'd drive them to another part of the borough um, to sit in a place with people they don't know, doing things that they don't particularly want to do. And we said that was quality adult social care. So we've turned that completely on its head and said, actually, we want to empower our staff to have a different conversation and invest that front into that conversation so you can really understand what's important to that person and what will make a difference. And you team that up with that, as I talked about earlier, that knowledge of what's going on in the community and you grow and invest in what's going on in the community and you can connect people in different ways. Um, so I think just some of those principles of getting to the root cause, having a different conversation, understanding, taking time to understand what makes a difference, and thinking about the wider community capacity to support that um, can be applied right the way across public services, from the way we do social care to the way we do our bins. I guess what I'm wondering is, I mean, these all sound like great ideas. Why, why, why were people not doing them yeah. before? Like, Piali, what do you reckon? Why, why has it taken austerity to get people to kind of rethink how they do things? I think it pushes you out of your comfort zone, for one thing. So I don't think we've had a choice but to find new ways. The, the element of transformation I wanted to talk about, it's kind of forced a whole different model of leadership, actually, out of, you know, rather than, you know, chief executives and senior managers, rather than running your business well and delivering to budget, it's become about convening and brokering and influencing and getting, getting your partners around a table and things. So I think backs to the wall. It forces a different kind of behavior. It's brought out a different skill set. It's brought out a different mindset. And I think you know, the NLGN's just put out something about culture. So I think it's, it's just kind of exposed that the old ways of doing things were just not going to get us anywhere because we didn't have the money to shape it. But also because of other partners were in the same position as us. So the police, health partners, everybody's back to the wall now. Jessica. I agree. It's, it's kind of it's uncomfortable territory. It's out of comfort zone. But the, there are there are some things that have happened that are potentially positive. Um, the, the old model of um, public service provision was see a social problem, create a ring-fenced funding stream that's dedicated to that problem, maybe a few targets, uh, pass all the money out to local authorities, assess them on their ability to meet those targets, um, and, and the local authority doesn't even have to think about it. It just, it just does it. And back in, back in the days of um, the last Labour government, there were, DfE had a kind of teenage pregnancy strategy. We've got to get teenage pregnancy down. And there were kind of spread Excel spreadsheets in Whitehall about numbers of teenage pregnancies in different local authorities and people wringing their hands, what can we do about it from a, from, from a building in, um, in Whitehall, which is kind of mad. It's absolutely about what goes on in the community. Um, but we, st we still have the vestiges of this kind of meddling target culture kind of prescriptive um, way of doing things that, that, that still ties the hands of local authorities. But one thing that has happened with austerity is there is less money around, but there is more flexibility because the, those ring the ring-fenced funding streams have mostly gone and there is mostly a bit more flexibility to 
take a challenge in a different way and, and, and come at, reframe the problem, which is exactly what, what is happening. And that's exactly what transformation kind of means to me. And yeah. indeed the devolution agenda altogether, actually. Okay, well, let's, let's get on to that. Um, I'm actually going to do some, you lucky people, I'm going to do some audience participation. <laughs> I, I'd like a, a show of hands. Who here will be in favour of stronger local government? Let's start with an easy one. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to see if there's anyone who hasn't got their hand up. Okay, any, anyone wants to object to that? No, no, I think that's everyone. Okay. So how many of you think that this government is likely to deliver it? Anyone? I don't, I don't see... Okay, not a single hand. Okay, slightly, slight variant on the question. How many of you think that a Labour government would be likely to deliver stronger local government? Oh, this is really depressing. It's just like... Okay, so that, I mean, I think, there's a, <laughs> I, I think there is about as strong a consensus as one could possibly imagine in the room that, you know, everyone wants stronger local government. Nobody seems to have any particular expectation of it happening. Um, Piali, let's go to you. Like, do you think, in the same way that kind of austerity has forced transformation on local government, do you think that anything could force devolution on central government and force them to accept that actually if you're going to want councils to rethink things, you're going to need to give them more powers? I do. And in fact, I think it's precisely because there's no bandwidth in, in the civil service right now to actually do anything about devolution, even if they wanted to. It's because actually if we look to local people to build the campaigns for what we want, the kinds of local powers we want, how we want to shape our communities, that will be a really powerful force for anybody else to try to withstand. So I think that's where we look. We look to our partners, we look to our people to start building the case for devolution and frankly do it by stealth. So a lot of Solace members now are talking about proceed until apprehended. If you think we're doing something wrong, take us to court then. But if our people feel served by what we're doing, you tell them that it's wrong. You know? Chris, what do you want to be doing in Barking that it, it's not necessarily been your role in the past? What are the powers you would like that you do not currently have? Mm, that's a good question, because I actually, I'm sort of with you actually on the, sort of the power of general competence and just uh, sheer will. I think we can get a heck of a lot done, actually. And um, I think around, I think the, the bits that are kind of missing, fundamentally missing, are around local finance and the, re the ring fencing of the proceeds of growth and how you're able to kind of stack up medium to long term business cases. That is fairly tortuous when you start having to deal with other levels of government. But actually, I think um, I'm, sort of, I'm sort of with this sort of, you know, um, the central government are a little bit off the pitch on this stuff at the moment. Um, well, they've got their minds on other things. They've got I their think. minds, which we, which we might get onto. Uh, but I, do th I think part of this actually is, I'm not entirely sure this is a. Qu we should start this from kind of a devolution question. And for me, it's a kind of what, enab what enables public service reform, and then where in the system is the agency for that reform to happen. So I'm less worried about a big debate about you know local governments the best they should give it all to us. It's kind of like where in the system. Are you likely to get the right leadership and the right proximity to people to make the right sorts of decisions and get change happening? That then, I think, gets you into a conversation about devolution. But finance is a huge barrier, right? Like it's all very well saying, you know, general competence, you know, do what you want until apprehended. But if you literally don't have the money, I mean, how do you deal with? It feels like there's a contradiction there, Catherine. Um, yeah, and I and I'd probably say. Uh, it's more than the money because I think, well, uh, Wigan's part of Greater Manchester, so we had one of the first devolution deals. Um, it's a reasonably comprehensive devolution deal. 
we, we agreed there would be more, and I think we're struggling with what um, you were saying around engagement and central government around that, because as you rightly said, their minds are on other things, and there's been a change in leadership and a change in personnel, which has meant we've lost some of those relationships that have been really core to it. Um, but we think that we need further devolution, particularly around the skills and employment agenda, so not just about money, but those powers, because the skills system is broken. Um, we, our colleges, our further education in Wigan are, are providing far too many, um, I know it's a cliche, but it's true, far too many hairdressers and not enough skills for the future. The centrally defined employment programmes do not understand local needs and they only really work for those that are close to employment, for those that have been out of work for a long time or have never been in work. The only way we can kind of address those, as Chris was saying, those root causes, those underlying issues, is at a local level. So I do believe we need more kind of powers devolved, particularly around the kind of skills and employment agenda. Jessica, I'm going to pick on you. How are we going to get around the finance problem? Um, well, I would argue that you need to have well, it's, it's, it's not exactly going to get people out campaigning in the streets, but I think you do need much more locally raised finance, um, which is the norm in a lot of other advanced Western countries, um, and um, they still manage to survive and indeed do much better than us in terms of kind of productivity and economic growth. I think that um, the two sources of local government finance are council tax based on outdated property prices and business rates data, uh, based on the size of premises of a business, which is totally detached from its actual value and contribution to the economy. If you had um, local VAT, local income tax, um, uh, even local corporation tax, some of the value creation in the economy was subject to local taxation. That is something that is the norm in, um, in the continent and in America and can potentially then link people to local decision making to a much greater extent at the moment. Um, local authorities have very few incentives to invest in growth or the skills um, of their local people um, because they will then be in jobs paying um, national insurance contributions, paying income tax, um, doing transactions in their local community, buying things, paying VAT, which all just gets sucked straight up to the Chancellor of the Exchequer and sort of parceled out in tiny little bits maybe, maybe to local government. So I just think when we're talking about finance, I don't want to talk about the numbers. To me, it's about the incentives and the behaviours and how you would create systems that, are, that genuinely work in terms of creating sort of a virtuous cycle of growth and investment in the local economy, which is just the norm. It's really controversial <laughs> in this country. No one's going to put their head above the parapet and campaign for uh, there to be local, local, new local taxation, but it just goes without saying in other countries. Piali, you wanted to come in. Well, what I, it's going to seg into Brexit, and I don't want to kind of cut across Chris and when he wants to come in, but I think part of it is we've surfaced the issues over and over again. We've had a number of reviews over the last decade, if not, that kind of say the same things over and over again, and our, our finance base gets more and more outdated. What maybe Brexit affords us is a bit of a chance to get our house in order, because you know what? Central government's not going to come up with a solution for us. We'd better ourselves come up with the best way of financing ourselves and think you know, figure out how we campaign for it, because if we don't cook up our own solutions, they're not going to do it for us, and we keep dissolving into sort of factions around this stuff. Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's a slight danger we get into a debate about semantics here, because I think part of this, it's going back to this point about what enabled the first five years to work so well for local government was that unring fencing. 
And if, you, if, if we sort of frame the devolution debate as to how do you, as far as possible, unring fence public sector resources at a local level, that's a far less kind of scary, that's not like about us saying we want to run it. It's just like how do you enable a sort of place to, to, to be slightly freed from the sort of top-down tether? And I think what that essentially means is a relationship with the Treasury uh, and how, you know, because they have... Of any part of government, that the most power, I think, to make this happen. And I think the pitch to them is a really, really simple one, which is, guys, over the last eight or nine years, which bit of government has been most successful at delivering deficit reduction? Is it, on the one hand, those big centralised bureaucracies um, with a you know pyramid running up to a minister, or right answer, has it been local governance? that's been able to kind of discern the right strategy locally and win consent from local people to make that happen. And I think if we have that argument with Treasury, then I think that's the way into this. Jessica, very quickly, because I'm, I'm going to ask the audience for questions. I have a roving okay. mic, so be thinking of questions. Jessica. So just on, on devolution, I think the challenge with devolution is that to date it's been seen as a policy which kind of arguably died with the, 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 the main advocate losing, losing his, his role. George career, effectively. <laughs> exactly. exactly. I don't see it much in the evening standard anymore, even. Um, so devolution, for me, is, is a process, not an end in itself. Um, we don't talk about the end as much as we talk about the process, and I'm, I'm a you know, kind of um, pro-devolution, so guilty of it as anyone. Um, but it's also a kind of a governance strategy. It was never just about those areas working differently. It's also about central government working differently. And what hasn't what what has sort of happened is it's become this kind of technocratic debate about what powers um, you can have and what bits of funding you can get from what departments that are prepared to seed. Um, unpopular things like the work programme, you can have that, adult skills budgets, oh well that's a bit difficult, we'll devolve that. Um, it's not actually about what can make things better, it's not actually about looking at public resource in the round. But meanwhile we've just gone through, which we're still reeling from, this enormous referendum in which the, um, the country voted to take back control and there's this massive popular demand for uh, being sceptic of government and being sceptic of uh, obviously Brussels but also Westminster and the two things are just happening totally decoupled from, from each other. I'm, I'm fairly sure when people voted to take back control they really wanted to give all the control back to some people in SW1. I think that was very much what they were voting for there. Um, I'm going to take advantage of, of the live format to sort of go to the audience for questions. Who, who, is, who is burning to ask a question? I will dive towards you with the microphone. Go on, I'm going to look dreadful if nobody has one. <laughs> Excellent, right. We have a volunteer. Right, another first for the podcast. I'm literally running to this chap here. Can you introduce yourself before the question? Um, John Metcalf from the Alawite Council. Isn't part of the challenge around devolution and taking powers back is that we've already let the genie out of the bottle. We've got some devolved areas with elected mayors who received substantial funding from government in the last budget, areas without mayors got absolutely nothing. How are we going to be able to challenge that? Because those areas that got nothing need the infrastructure, need the investment, as much as those areas with mayors. That was something I found very interesting about the budget we just had, actually, was the areas with metro mayors got a certain amount of transport funding that was not forthcoming to, to others. So who'd like to take that question? P. Arley, let's go to you. 
It, it is a challenge, and actually I think part of the onus is on the areas that did manage to secure some funding and powers to kind of start opening the door more and more to the areas that didn't. I know it's not natural because we've actually instituted competitive tension as the way we do business in this country, but actually we've got to start using that. So I think it's about those schemes, for example, starting to open up and unlock other parts of our economy and doing that unbalancing, which sounds idealistic, I realize, but I just don't see very many other avenues in the short term anyway. Chris? Just very briefly, I think we, tempting as it is to try and judge things quickly, I think we need to take quite a long-term view on this. Probably the best example is TfL, 20 years ago, devolved to, go, devolved to London, and if there is a public sector organisation in the world which I think has transformed a place, it is TfL. And I don't, I don't say that it's kind of like they're perfect at everything, but London, the story of London and the last 20 years and the story of TfL, I think when the history books are written, will say... That was a pivotal. That was a pivotal moment in in the, the in in the state in this country. It's just been transformative, and I don't think it would have happened had we tried to run the tubes out of Whitehall. Yeah, people actually come to visit London from other transport authorities around the world, which would have been inconceivable in like the 1980s, I think. Yeah. And also, this is, this is a very personal theory, which I suspect normal people who don't stare at maps all day don't buy into, but I, I have a theory that one of the reasons Greater Manchester has done so well at kind of bringing the 10 boroughs together in, behind a single agenda is because they got used to working together on, on Metrolink. Yeah. Was, actually, I'm going to ask you, since <laughs> Wigan is a borough, this is a very long way from the tram network, but you guys have bought into it, right? Yeah, um, yeah we have. We've got, we've got a guided busway. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure whether it was the kind of working together on, on, on Metrolink that brought the 10 um, GM local authorities together, but it was certainly the long history of collaboration that has really put us in good stead around um, making the case for um, devolution. Um, but I completely agree with your point about transport for London. For, for us, that was one of the, you know, the big kind of cases for change of you know, look what can happen if you can devolve powers or decision making um, closer to the those to the people that will be impacted by those. Um, and I think you know a really good kind of um, ambition for us to follow in Greater Manchester. We should probably be wrapping up, sadly. But I'm going to I'm going to ask everyone to give me like one one optimistic prediction of like how things could change over the next few years if everything goes to plan. What would you like to be different in 2030 to now? Jessica, let's start with you. Oh, so I think that there is a massive challenge in this country, that we are a very divided nation. Um, we are still reeling from Brexit. Our um, national... Uh, the um, capacity of government, the capacity of Whitehall to deal with um, what's going on is totally uh, inadequate. There's total incompetence. There is a real opportunity for local government to stand up and be the ones that are actually delivering for people. And there's never been more of a needed time for consensus to be forged between between people and between communities. And very, the, the Brexit vote was incredibly different in different geographical locations. But there is a real lo role for local government that isn't a sort of technocratic socio-economic uh, role about kind of um, parceled out powers and, and, um, uh, and finance but is about dialogue and community and pride of place all the kind of cultural aspects that people value and a lot of what motivated people to, to vote the way they did in the referendum whichever way they did and I just think there's a big opportunity for local government to step into the void that we're seeing in terms of national government competence 
Chris, a prediction, preferably a brief one. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. I, so when we do our corporate induction, I say to folk, this is the absolute best time to work in the local government because we're going to be the generation of public services servants who figure out what 21st century public service is going to be about. That is helped by the fact I think we have a government with zero bandwidth to think about public service reform. And I would suggest to you an opposition that is disinterested in public service reform. So I do think that's where local government can step in. Piali? I think if we really believe we're going to be globally competitive post-European Union, we'd better look at what kinds of powers other places have given their cities that makes them attractive to investors and development. And I think you'll find actually Germany, the US, Canada, cities have a lot more investment power, a lot more fiscal levers that make investors come there. And that's going to be our case, I think, for devolution. Catherine? Um, I'm not so much a prediction, but maybe a hope that, our, um, that local people feel like they are able to um, influence and are empowered um, to be involved in local decision making and be able to um, influence what goes on in their local areas and their local towns. Thank you very much to all our panel and thank you all for joining us here in the West Crypt. If you could put your hands together. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.